I would like to, before we get to 2 Samuel chapter 15, I would like to spend some time in prayer with you guys in Psalm chapter 3. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Yahweh, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. You are my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for Yahweh sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. I love that psalm. And tonight we see why David wrote it. So let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 15, please. Second Samuel 15, the kingdom of the megalomaniac. Um, if you thought that's interesting, the original title, until I thought it through, was the misery... Of the melodramatic megalomaniac monarchy. I liked it. But then I thought, that's not helpful. (laughs) So the kingdom of the megalomaniac. Now, yes, it's a word. I already saw people Googling that word to figure out what it was. Um, Megalo, mega, megalo, they're the same uh, prefix. It deals with gigantic and maniac is a very enthusiastic person, sometimes a little off balance in enthusiasm. And put together, it's been translated to mean you think you're really self-important. You have a very high opinion of yourself. So tonight we're going to see what it looks like when a megalomaniac wants to rule. And what his kingdom is. Now, of course, the phrasing is meant to contrast what should already be in your mind is the kingdom of God. But here we're going to see the kingdom of someone who's not asserting the megas of life to God. They're asserting the megas to themselves. This is chapter 23 of A Tale of Three Kings. David was alone again, slowly, quietly. He walked the length of his rooftop garden. Finally, he paused and spoke aloud to himself. I have waited, Absalom. I have waited and watched for years. I have asked again and again, 
what is in the heart of this young man? And now I know. You will do the unthinkable. You will divide the very kingdom of God. All else was talk. David was quiet for a moment. Then, almost in awe, he spoke. His voice hushed. Absalom does not hesitate to divide the kingdom of God. Now I know he seeks followers, or at least he does not turn them away. Though he seems magnificently pure and noble, still he divides. His followers grow. Even though he states convincingly that he has none, for a long time, David said nothing. Finally, with a trace of humor in his words, he began to address himself. All right, good King David, you have one issue to resolve, or one issue resolved. You are in the middle of a division, and you may very well be dethroned. Now to the second issue. He paused, lifted his hand, and almost fatally asked, What? Will you do? The kingdom hangs in the balance. It seems I have two choices. To lose everything or to be a Saul. I can stop Absalom. I need only to be a Saul. In my old age, shall I now become a Saul? I feel the Lord himself awaits my decision. Shall I now be a Saul? He asked himself again, this time loudly. I love this scene from this book, A Tale of Three Kings, which chronicles David's struggles with King Saul and his son Absalom, as we'll see tonight. And this question that he asks himself twice, Will I now become a King Saul. Now, what does that mean? You may remember, as we've been going through Samuel, that King Saul was the very first king, and the Hebrew text gives us this word, Gebvoach, and it means high or tall. And it, the narrative gives us this emphasis that Saul's a tall person. But we see that that Hebrew word is also used to not just refer to physical stature, but to pride and arrogance. And we see that Saul goes through life very tall, very much above everybody else. And then he loses favor with God. And this young shepherd boy is anointed to be his replacement. And Saul does everything he can to persecute and punish the shepherd boy because he will not give up his throne to this little, 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 little runt of a man. And the text does tell us that David was little, and he was seen as little to other people. There's this great contrast. Saul has the gebohach, the the charismatic appearance and way of doing things and personality that everyone's drawn to. David just kind of, oh yeah, I know about your brothers, but who are you? I know about your parents. Oh, they had another kid? Didn't know that. Nice to meet you. David always being overlooked, always underestimated. So Saul persecutes him. David is in running. He's a fugitive for his life. He's an enemy against the state simply because he exists. 
simply because the king is mad and does not want to lose his power, his privilege, his esteem. What David now has before him is his own son. This is years ahead now, right? He's king of Israel. He, Saul finally dies. David finally gets his promise given to him. And God said, you will be the next king. David becomes the next king. He's on the throne. Years go by. And his third son, Absalom, like Saul, incredibly charismatic, incredibly good looking. And the kingdom's heart is stolen by Absalom. And Absalom is now ready to take the throne from David, his father. And David is now in a spot like King Saul, isn't he? Another younger king, a more promising king, is on the loose. And David's faced with the question, will I be like my persecutor of old? And will I persecute Absalom? Will I make him an enemy of the state? Will I make his life miserable? What am I going to do? So, we're going to see David choose not to be King Saul, but to be King David, the man after God's own heart. And he makes one of the hardest decisions you can ever make. The world will look at David and say, weakling, you couldn't even protect your throne. But I see David, and I believe those that know the way of Jesus see David as someone who did the harder thing which took a bigger man to do. Let's look at the story. We're going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 15. So remember, Absalom is David's third son. Remember, Absalom, last week his sister Tamar was raped by David's first son, Amnon. Absalom kills Amnon because David didn't do anything about it. So he's already taking the action as a king. He's taking care of justice in the land, and the people are noticing. So here's his cocky son. By the way, Absalom, if you haven't gotten it, he's our megalomaniac. That's who we're looking at. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses. No one said, here, you should have a chariot and horses. He got for himself. He's like, well, everyone else is driving this. I deserve the thing that's one step up. And, on top of that, 50 men to run before him. Two horsepower chariot, 50 human power. How about that? 50 humans to run before him. Why? Well, you get some of the most handsome, well-dressed, beautiful people in the kingdom to run before you. They're just precursors of the true glory to come. They can go out and yell, Make way, Absalom the Great! And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. Now, the gate is where kings would often sometimes come and meet the people. Rather than bringing them into their throne, sometimes they'd go to the gate and sit with the people and hear their problems and their cases, and they would make judgments. Okay, you did that to her, so you owe him that. Or you're fighting over that, I determine you guys split it. The king would make judgments. But Absalom is sitting in the gate in his father's absence. And it says, when a man, any man, had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would intercept the request. Absalom would call to him and say, hey, from what city are you? And I'm sure he knew something about every town. Oh, I'm from the the village over there. I know that place. I was very fond of the dates. You guys grew the sweetest in the land. And people are being, Absalom knows what's up. He's with the times. He's with the people. 
and he would say, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel. And Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Oh, you poor person. I'm sympathizing with your situation. If only there was somebody to help you. Our king isn't doing much. Maybe I can assist you. Then Absalom would say, verse 4, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. You can hear people clap. It's like a, this is like a rally in a democratic nation, like somebody running for king. And he's getting hoots and hollers and signs and applause and the media. And people are like, this Absalom guy's got some good ideas. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Our narrator wants us to know that Absalom is not trying to step into a gap in the kingdom to help the kingdom. He's seizing an opportunity to bring the kingdom to himself. Hence the word, he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. So we see his mannerism. In chapter 14, verse 23, just a little bit above this, we see some of his appearance. This guy's gorgeous. I'm not sure what your definition of a gorgeous man is, so I'm not going to give you examples, name celebrities or anything, but just think of whatever gorgeous is to you. That's Absalom. Come on, men, you can admit you have a man crush somewhere. That's Ab... Whoever... (laughs) Maybe you can send me your... Never I don't know. Okay. Whoever that is, this is Absalom. Now, in all Israel, this is 1425, 1425. Now, in all all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Apparently, he had been investigated. He won the beauty pageants. And when he cut the hair of his head, For at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight, which I did a little research for you and put that in American terminology, and it weighs almost five pounds. (laughs) It's a strong neck. Almost five pounds of hair. In every year, it would grow this way, and then he would cut it off and start over. And everyone would watch the gorgeous golden locks regrow. Um, maybe the ladies put a wager on how much it weighed every year. This is Absalom, getting a lot of attention. By the way, someone noticed, said, you got a haircut this week. And I did. And then I, it hit me immediately. It's like, oh, Absalom. I'm like, no, no, that's not why I cut my hair. That's not why. Because one of the re- yeah, I, okay. I was just tired of heavier, long hair. I know ladies, yours is longer. I get it, but I didn't like it. And I'm like, I'm, okay, let's just move on. So we get a picture, though, of, of this guy's um, image, and he knows it. He knows it. And everyone knows, everyone knows Absalom. And now, and now, with this good looks behind him, he's pushing on into the hearts of the people. He's undermining his father. Verse 7. This is back in chapter 15, verse 7. 
At the end of four years, so he's politicking for four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to Yahweh in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If Yahweh will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to Yahweh. Pause. Remember Absalom was excommunicated from Jerusalem because he killed David's firstborn son Amnon for raping his sister. Um, Absalom was excommunicated. He was finally brought back. Now Absalom's saying, hey, this is what I prayed for. Let me go pay a vow because God brought me back. So the king, David, in verse 9, said to him, go in peace. Now, we can think that David is really blind to what's going on. Last time Absalom asked to go and do this celebration thing, he killed Amnon. Is David blind to think that Absalom, oh, he's throwing another feast. Hmm, nothing bad can happen again, right? Or does David know, and he's decided that there's nothing he can do but let the events run their course? We don't know. But David says, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Okay. So there's this conspiracy throughout the land. A trumpet's going to blow, and it's going to remind everybody there's a new king. Listen up. Verse 11, with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. He's now secretly grabbed, whether David knows or not, we don't know, but he grabbed David's counselor, Ahithophel. Wow, he's now reaching into the court itself and grabbing some of David's men. And a messenger, verse 13, a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of all the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, drop on your swords. Let's attack the young man, the arrogant brute who's trying to take my throne. How dare him? Oh, no, that's what King Saul would have said. He said, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Does David really believe Absalom can take him down? Maybe. Maybe he's got more of the better soldiers on his side. Maybe. But I don't think David wants to put the city of Jerusalem under the extreme conditions of a siege and warfare. Can David win? Can he fight it out? Yes. Yes. But at what cost? At what cost of the very city he's ruling over? David makes a choice to flee, to give the city and the throne up to this megalomaniac. And the king's servants said to the king, verse 15, Behold, your servants are ready to go 
are ready to do whatever my lord, the king, decides. So the king went out and all his household after him. And after the king left, uh, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And so it just gives us a list of those who are going with David. He's taking the whole palace with him. They're, they're going into exile. They're leaving Jerusalem and going into the wilderness. Verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites. Abiathar and Zadok are priests. Zadok is the high priest. And they are bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until all the people had passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, By the way, it's just hit me. I love how the narrator is not calling him just David. He's calling him the king. Lest the reader confuse Absalom's revolt as legitimate. So even in his humility, even in his descent, even in his exile, our storyteller still sees David as the king. The king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of Yahweh, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do what he seems good, what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Amiaz, uh, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. So what's David doing? First, this is a statement of faith. Don't bring the ark of the covenant, the sign of God's presence, with us. Who are we to assume that God is with us? Maybe he's with Absalom. If God really is with me, I will come back to the temple again. So leave the ark there. Also, my two priests, stay there as my spies. Listen to what Absalom is going to do and send word to me. So David now has ears and eyes inside Jerusalem. Um, David finds out that his counselor Ahithophel is with Absalom. And then he prays in verse 31, Yahweh, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. God will honor that prayer, by the way. Verse 32, while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden. Hushai, by the way, is just one of David's best friends. He says, I will be your servant, but um, he wants Hushai to go into the city and uh, be ears and eyes for him. Then in verse 16, chapter 16, verse 5. 16.5, when King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. As he came, he cursed continually. Every bad, dirty word in the book is being thrown at David right now, smeared across him. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, 
Get out. Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. Yahweh has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. You're the king. You're the king. You don't even have to do it. You just have to nod with your chin, and this guy's head would roll before you. You are the king, and he is screaming curses at you. He's invoking the name of your God as the curse upon you. He's throwing stones at you and your men. How do you shoulder this? How do you just keep on walking in your humility? Shimei said, oh, uh, verse 9, Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Abishai is David's nephew, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Uriah? If he is cursing because Yahweh has said to him, Curse David? Then who am I? Then who shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Everyone, Now, you can kind of see this is kind of like Jesus, right? The disciples are always saying things like, who's the greatest? Hey, can we be at your right and left hand in your kingdom? And then Jesus says, you you don't know what you're asking. And then he calls his disciples together, right, and teaches them. Here, David tells this guy to settle down a little bit. And then calls his servants to him. And he explains, this is my way. Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite... Leave him alone and let him curse, for Yahweh has told him to. It may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me and that Yahweh will repay me with good for his cursing today. Who thinks like that when they're being cursed and thrown at? This is showing us the heart of David, who's always sought everything in life to be from the hand of Yahweh. And trusting, look, I may have the power to take care of this guy, but if I do, that is my reward. That's my reward. I would rather let him do what he's doing because maybe God did tell him to do this. Why would I resist God? And if I let him do this, and if he's doing it out of his own selfish ambition, then let God judge him and repay me. The reward for enduring this will be far greater, in other words, far greater than my getting satisfaction at dealing with him right now. It's my ego, my flesh, my pride, the little little megalomaniac within all of us that wants to deal with this rat. But David has learned, and he's learning it now, as he descends from the throne, just like Christ descended from the throne to come to us. He's leaving home. He's learning how to serve and put himself aside. This isn't like David learning on the fly. He's had a lifetime of experience in this. This is why he suffered under King Saul. King Saul taught him how to seek the higher road by lowering himself. And now when Absalom tries to raise him, raise up against him, David has already gone through this game again. Only this time, he has power to do wrong. And he's choosing not to use his power inappropriately. 
Why do we lack leaders who use power well? Because we lack leaders who suffer well. Power is not meant to protect us from suffering. Power is meant to lift others up from their suffering. And David will not let the citizens of Jerusalem suffer because his son is a rebel. So he just takes it upon himself. Which, is that not what Christ did? Taking the sufferings of the world upon himself. It makes us wonder, how do we model the cross to people? How do we witness? Yeah, words are good and important, but it's not always getting their minds to suddenly switch their thoughts about God. It's them seeing us carrying the cross in life. You want people to see Jesus dying on the cross for their sins? You can tell them or you can show them. And we can show them by taking on the sufferings of others. Because we are not too cowardly to use our power to push it off of ourselves. David is truly showing us the way of the Messiah. Another another reason David can do this is because David understands why he's in power. He did not kill King Saul. Remember how he had two chances to kill Saul? Saul once was relieving himself in a cave, nude and exposed and unable to fight. But David chose instead just to cut the corner off his robe to give Saul a warning. Remember when David wandered into the camp and there was nobody keeping watch and he was right above King Saul as he breathed in his sleep? And it was his assistants telling him, spear him to the ground right now. God's given him to you. And David said, I can't do it this way. Instead, God took care of King Saul for him. King Saul died in battle. David rose up to the throne. David learned, David learned that when we strive to gain something, we will strive to maintain that something. That when we strive to gain, we will strive to maintain. We have dreams. We have desires. We have things that are in our hearts or plans or visions. And and we want that. But how are you going to get it? If we are going to strive to gain it, you you will forever strive to maintain it. You'll never rest in it. And and if David had killed Saul to get the throne, David would have to then continue to kill every challenger to keep the throne. But because David rose to the throne simply by God opening the doors, David didn't have to do anything to keep his throne. He could easily walk away. It would hurt, of course, but he would walk away because he knows, I didn't lift a finger to earn it. I don't need to lift a finger to keep it. God may very well be saying, I'm done with you, David. It's time to move on. This is how David can decide not to launch warfare against his rebellious son. Because he did not win the crown through violence, he will therefore not keep the crown through violence. And when we are finding ourselves wanting to use our powers to defend and to protect our dreams and our desires and to keep the suffering away from us, and we're, we're finding ourselves striving to keep things together, it's probably because whatever we have, we strove too hard to get in the first place. The megalomaniac will do whatever he can to reach that what he wants. He's an opportunist, seeing every little crack as something to kick the door open and punch the people out of the way so he can get the prize. That's what Absalom's doing, but that's what David never did and still doesn't do. Sure, 
sure, can you get it? Can you gain it? Can you strive? Can you, can you push people over to get it? America was built upon the ambition of free people. That was a good thing. But sometimes our culture goes too far and says, keep pushing people out of your way to get what you want. You're your own person. It's a free country. You can do whatever you want. You have a dream, you go get your dream. It's your dream. It's for you. You deserve it. And we're often not very ethical in the way we try to improve the world or in the way we try to grab our dream. But, you know, we okay it. We okay people who steamroll over servants to build their kingdom because it's, it's cultural. It's just what we do. But if we stop, we have to recognize that maybe we need more patience. Maybe we need more God leading the way and less us making the way. So Absalom enters Jerusalem. No shots fired. Gates open. Yay, he's here. What does he do? First thing he does is he sleeps with the ten concubines David left behind on the rooftop in full view of the whole kingdom which would have obviously humiliated David um, and would have made it look like Absalom now owns everything even David's wives do you remember when um, David sinned against, Bathsh- uh, sinned against God by sleeping with Bathsheba another man's wife last week do you remember this um, the prophet Nathan came to David and said, in short, this is Second Samuel 12, he said in short, look David, you slept with someone's wife in secret. God's going to raise up an enemy within your own house against you who will sleep with your wives in public. And so this is part of what's happened because of David's sin. And then do you remember that there were four? Uh, David said, whoever does such a crime should pay fourfold and then Nathan's like, yeah, that crime is you who did it. And David's like, oh, no, I have done wrong. David pays fourfold. Um, first, the child that he had with Bathsheba dies. Second, Amnon, his firstborn son, the next in line to reign, uh, rapes his daughter Tamar. Third, Absalom then murders Amnon in revenge. And fourth, the fourfold punishment, the fourth one, we're now seeing as Absalom takes Jerusalem from his dad and sleeps with his concubines. Chapter 17 is fantastic. I want you guys to read it on your own time. But it's fantastic um, for two reasons. Hushai, remember, this is David's friend. David tells him to don't come with me you'll be a burden to me if you come with me i want you good friend right i'm here with you man you're suffering i'm here with you i don't want you you're a burden go but but david saw something he knows his friend's ability to reason and to use words he tells hushai to go back pledge yourself to absalom so absalom is in the court now in chapter 17 he's on you can imagine him he's on the throne and he's He's wondering, what should we do with David, my old father, gray-bearded David? And Ahithophel, 
David's counselor, who's betrayed him and joined Absalom, the narrator tells us that Ahithophel's advice was always seen as good. This is the guy who knew what to do. He had insight. He's now working for his second administration. He's that good. And they ask him, what should we do? And Ahithophel says, well, you should, uh, tonight, when they're all asleep, you should go secretly attack. And then Absalom and his advisors say, that's really good advice. Let's take them out tonight. But then Hushai, standing there in the corner quietly, is called upon. Hushai, what do you say we should do? Maybe out of jest. Maybe out of like, let's mock this old friend of David, see what he says we should do. Hushai begins spilling out words that captivates the entire court. And he begins giving better advice than Ahithophel. And Absalom and the servants say, Hushai's advice is good. Now, Hushai is, of course, giving this advice to protect David. He's duping them because he is a good wordsmith. One of the things that's so great about this chapter is if you compare the two accounts, what Ahithophel says they should do, he just basically is straight to the chase, says, we should do this. But Hushai, he is poetic in how he says they should do it. He uses vivid imagery, talks about a bear being robbed. If you attack David right now, he will be like a bear robbed of her cubs. Like, he's using these words which strike Absalom with fear. Like, whoa, maybe I'm underestimating my dad here. It buys time. Hushai is able to send word, probably through, like, secret messengers, right? Innocent women just doing their daily thing, going to the temple, sends word to Zadok the priest. Zadok the priest sends word to his sons. His sons then um, find someone to go out into the wilderness and tell David. And David and his men are already like, hey, Hey, Absalom's coming out for you, but this is exactly how. It's not going to be a secret night attack. It's going to be a full frontal attack with Absalom leading the army because he's got a big uh, megalomaniac head. He wants everybody to see him in his glory, his great golden hair glistening in the sun as they ride into battle. He's coming out to you right there. David, get ready to meet him. So David and his men are ready. They're ready. And David's defending now his people against Absalom. And they go to battle. And in chapter 18, the battle begins. 18 verse 6. So the army went out into the battle against Israel. And the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated. Now remember, Israel refers to the people that Absalom's leading. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Why did he stop there? I want to know more about this forest devouring people. That sounds really interesting. And by the way, sometimes we look at things and say, Oh, that's such fanciful thinking. But C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien in their stories have trees fighting in battles. They're not grabbing the stuff out of thin air. They're just saying, well, what if we put that into motion literally? What would that look like? Who knows? By the way, take all this with a grain of salt. But the Psalms talk about the trees clapping their hands when God returns. Um. Isaiah says something similar. Isaiah adds, the hills will laugh or they will cheer. They'll sing for joy when when God returns. 
we don't know. We don't know if we're seeing a creation that's subdued because of the curse of sin. A creation that's never actually been able to rise up out of that. Is creation more playful than what we know it as? Is it more alive than we know it as? We don't know. We really don't know. It could just simply mean that the forest itself is just a dangerous place and people are impaling themselves on branches and wild boars are chasing them and bears and stuff. Who knows? We don't know. But provocative sentence. And of course, my imagination just wants to live there. But we'll move on. But what you do see is how one, one of the ways that the forest takes down one of the soldiers. And this is Absalom. Verse 9. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Of course, that's when you say, giddy up. So Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Now, it doesn't say this, and I looked at the Hebrew. The Hebrew just says his head was caught in the oak. But the New Living Translation is imaginatively saying, well, probably it was his hair that got caught in the oak. That long, gorgeous hair. Which, of course, I love the irony of that. Because we're introduced to Absalom with this guy, this gorgeous-haired guy. And like this is the magnetism that he has. And it's that very thing that ends up hanging him. So whether, whether his neck is caught in a branch, or he's hung by his hair, or it's a bit of both, whatever the case is, there he is suspended, and the glorious locks tangle like a spider's web in the branches. And he's dangling because his mule is no longer under him. Now, David loved his son. He asked that the soldiers, if they find him, deal kindly with Absalom. David probably is going to extend a chance at forgiveness for him. But we never get to find out if that's true. Because David's commander, Joab, is a very bloodthirsty man. If you've been reading through some of the parts that we don't get to talk on every, uh, each week, if you've been reading through the text, you've seen a couple times where Joab will assassinate somebody because David didn't want to. Well, Joab's told that Absalom was found. And in verse 13, 14, Joab is impatient with somebody who said that they didn't kill Absalom because I saw him, but I didn't kill him because David said not to kill him. And Absalom's like, why waste my time with you? So Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he, he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And of course, each one, Joab is giving him a message, right? This is for doing this, and this is for, and saying all kinds of things to him, so that Absalom can die with those words in his head. Joab was wanting revenge. Then Joab, verse 16, blew the trumpet. And the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. So the war is now over. David mourns the death of his son. You see in 1831, um, the news is delivered to David. And if you look at verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. This is his hideout city. They're in a different city. It's not Jerusalem. So he goes up into the chamber over the gate and he weeps. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. 
that question, shall David now be a Saul? Isn't it clearly answered? There is not an ounce of Saul in David. There is not an ounce of a megalomaniac in David. In chapter 19, Joab is very upset because the soldiers come into the city with this great victory that they put their lives on the line for this king that they love. And as they come in, rather than celebration and victory and good job, guys, you got them, they hear weeping. And there's this mood of, what did we do? And Joab is furious. He's, the, he's leading his men. And he said, how dare you make us feel like we did you wrong for doing, for protecting you? And he chews David out. And David, he basically says, David, you have to man up and show yourself to these people and comfort them. David does. But guess what happens next? Joab is relieved of his command. And in verse 13, I'm not seeing the name. Um, Amasa. Amasa is put in his place. Amasa was the commander of Absalom's army. What? Yeah, David did that. Joab doesn't stay faithful to David to the end, and I think we see why. Um, when Saul, there's, you guys will get to hear next week when Pastor Mike takes us into 1 Kings, um, when Solomon is finally announced king, Joab is not exactly on David's side. So in verse 16, chapter 19, 16, we see David pardons his enemies. Um, he doesn't execute anyone. He forgives them. Which shows us just the great, compa- uh, the great forgiveness and mercy for those who want to say, I'm sorry, before Jesus. Um, and then... In chapter 20, there's another rebellion. David's, David's reign ends very weak. He kind of, you can tell the, the king's aging. There's another rebellion, but it's shut down immediately. Um, and then in chapter 22, we see David's, uh, his song. It's actually Psalm 18, but it's just right there for you in Second Samuel. So we see when Psalm 18 was written. Chapter 23, we see the last words of David. And in verse 1, he's referred to the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was known for being a great singer. Chapter 23 tells us about David's mighty men. He had 30 of them. And then chapter 24 ends, very interestingly, David takes a census, which was against God's command. The census basically means you're counting the number of people who can be in your army. And the idea was, David, don't know how much power you have. And um, a plague comes to Jerusalem. David staves off the plague, though, by buying a plot of land where the angel of the Lord is there to bring more plague to Jerusalem. He buys that plot of land and offers a sacrifice to God, and the plague is stopped. The land he bought became the very land which his father would build the temple on. So the story ends with another disaster of David, but with this little hope of this is now where the temple is going to come in. David did something at the end to make a way for God to live with his people. Okay, so those are the chapters. Um, When we strive to gain, we will strive to maintain. 
We see the megalomaniac Absalom. We see the meek and humble King David, who looks far more like Jesus than Absalom does. I want you guys to consider with me James chapter 3. James chapter 3. I heard some zipping, so if you already put your Bible away, God will forgive you. Uh, just kidding. Well, I mean, he will. That's real. But um, the joke, though, that you're in trouble. You can listen if you want. James, I guess, just keep going. James 3, 13. James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? You could see all the hands go up, right? That he's his imaginary audience. We are. Okay. So by your good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If you think you're wise, show me through meekness. That's what wisdom brings is meekness. What is meekness? It's not a word we use a lot. Sure, there's a coffee house in Redlands called the Meek House. That's probably the last time you said the word meek in the last year. Humility, gentleness, there's some ways to say it. Meekness is the patience to undergo injury without resentment. Did David do that? Did he undergo injury without resentment? Absolutely. He patiently endured what Absalom did to him and never resented his son. David was meek. Now, you think meekness sounds like such a sussy thing. You're wrong. It is not easy to endure injury without resentment. The weakling wants to get even with people. Meekness is strength. Someone has said that meekness is strength harnessed. It's the power of a horse under control. That was David. So you think you're wise? Well then, show me with your good conduct his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, here's the opposite. Verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, sounds like a megalomaniac. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That last one sounds like David. But I want us to consider real carefully who is the person that our culture exalts? Think about the icons of our culture. And if we took them as examples, which path would we go down? Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is considered a virtue in our culture. Even in the church, I'm ashamed to say. But what did James say? This is not the wisdom that comes 
down from above. And I like the imagery of coming down. Like David comes down off the throne. Jesus comes down to earth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Friends, it's hard to critique the culture you live in. There's the old parable about an old fish who walks, or walks, who swims by two younger fish and says, Hey boys, how's the water? The two younger fish, as they swim on a bit, eventually turn to each other and said, Did he ask us, how's, what's water? Right? Because they've known water since they were born. They don't, they don't understand that there could be cold water. Warm. It's just the air they live in, right? The older fish, though, kind of has learned. That's an example of us in culture that sometimes we're not aware because we're just born with these values pushed at us. We watch television, we watch movies, we listen to music, we see our icons, we see our heroes, we hear how history details the stories of the heroes of our nation. And not knocking all of that at all. There is definitely some good. But if we do not critically take this in, we can just assume that this is the way things are without realizing, wait a minute, is this perhaps wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic? And is it possible that the devil is working his ways into what we would consider normal, conventional living? David takes the opposite approach. He does something that we would we may think foolish, but James would say he was the wise one. He was not jealous. He did not have selfish ambition. Therefore, there was not disorder in every vile practice. David was a true leader by giving up his leadership. And that is something that I find a hard time imagining myself saying, let's just say, I know this would never happen, but I was invited to like a Google talk among all the like techie leaders of the world. And I was to tell them about how to be good leaders. I was to tell them about the story of David. Can you imagine how that would go? I'm not sure that this is what our culture values, but this is what Jesus does. And so as David realized the kingdom hangs in the balance. Will I be a King Saul? That is our question every day. How are we going to use the power that God has given us? Okay, so let's close with this. The, the, mega, the megalomaniac. Um, they look like this. They're people that have a dream. If you have a dream, that's fine. But I want to clarify something. My dream is a bad place to start. The kingdom of God is our allegiance. My dream, as long as I keep emphasizing that it's mine, is working against the very notion of God's kingdom. The kingdom of the megalomaniac says, I have a vision. And because of that, I must achieve it. So I will do what I need to do. I will grasp it. I will grab it. I will reach for it. But the kingdom of God has taught us to receive that we are saved by grace and not by works. That it's not what we achieve for his kingdom, but it's what we receive from his kingdom that makes the kingdom great. 
No, sure, sure. God wants you to go do stuff. I'm not saying you sit around like, I'm just going to get a manicure all day, or pedicure, whichever the foot is. I'm going to get that all day. Keep serving me. Like, that's not the idea. But we cannot achieve anything for the kingdom until we first receive something from the kingdom. Because if we don't receive the grace and forgiveness and love from God and, the, and learn the ways of meekness and humility, if we don't receive that first, we will achieve our aims in our way and we will look more like a megalomaniac than we will like a megalomaniac. If that works. So my dream, I'm going to achieve it no matter how. I'm going to seek every opportunity. Third, <laughs> this one gets me. There's a lot of talk about the five-year plan. Do you have a five-year plan? Now, Mike Beavers is big on this, so this is not at all the wrong. Th- I can't say it because he's here. But if he wasn't, I would. I'm just kidding. <laughs> five-year plans are fantastic if we're not megalomaniacs. Here's, here's the problem is if we're megalomaniacs, the five-year plan is dangerous because that puts a lot of pressure on me to get what I need to get done now, no matter the cost. Five years is not a lot of time in the span of a life. The kingdom of God is more 50-year plan oriented. It says, I do have dreams and I do have things I want to achieve, but I'm going to do it for the kingdom of God at the speed and the time of the kingdom of God. And if it takes me 15 years to learn the humility to get to where I need to be, then it will take me 15 years. You can't shortcut discipleship and growing fruit and becoming like Christ. Some things cannot be done in five years. So again, I'm not knocking the the literal year amount. It's just an example that sometimes we cannot set up these specific steps and say, but I'm not there because if you're a megalomaniac, you're going to do some dangerous things to get there. But if we have meekness, great. God can set out the timetable however he wants. But we need to be less impatient and more patient because the kingdom of God has been rolling for thousands of years. It's doing fine. Every empire thinks it's the next great thing. How many have we seen come and go? That's what, you know, apart from looking at the future, if, if anything else Revelation says, is it says that. Every kingdom that thinks it's all that, the megalomaniacs that rule it, all of them fall. All of them. That's, that's something worth holding on to. And finally, the megalomaniac will walk over people, but the meek, yak, the meek one will walk out. David walked out of Jerusalem. He would not walk over Absalom. Absalom would walk over his father. So I want to finish by reading to you guys the last paragraph of this book I keep talking about. And if you've been listening to the extra podcasts and stuff, you're probably tired of this book by now, but here it is. Um, This is how the book ends. So we opened with a quote from it. I'm going to end with a quote. David decides, he's speaking, remember, will I be another King Saul? This is his answer. I will leave the city. The throne is the Lord's. So is the kingdom. I will not hinder God. No obstacle, no activity on my part lies between me and God's will. Nothing will prevent him, God, from accomplishing his will. If I am not to be king, God will find no difficulty in making Absalom to be Israel's king. Now, it is possible. God shall be God. End quote. Then it says, The true king turned and walked quietly out of the throne room, out of the palace, 
out of the city. And he walked and he walked into the bosom of all men whose hearts are pure. The worship team's going to come up and we're going to take communion.